I think a lot of the interesting part is that, you know, you can get polarized by seeing stuff you agree with all the time. You can also get polarized by occasionally seeing disagreement. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I always listen to all types of news. I'm serious. Really? Yeah, all the time. And it makes me angry sometimes. I'm just trying to know <laughs> what's happening, you know. It's a healthy angry in your case. Yeah. As a communication researcher, I spend a lot of time talking with people about just that, how they communicate. And lately, there's been a lot of discussion about social media and fake news and how it can really affect our perceptions of each other. I asked a dear colleague of mine, Kirsten Thorsen, professor here at MSU, to join me today to talk about this. Kirsten, welcome to Life Meet Tech. Thank you for having me. So I have uh, a story to tell you. Uh, we have this strategic communication master's program. And uh, I was very curious one day. I Googled and I wanted to find out who our competitors were and what's happening. And lo and behold, your former employer, uh, Southern <laughs> California, was the one that popped up. And I was very curious. I wanted to know what they were doing. And so I clicked. And from that day on, the computer thinks that I'm in the market for a master's program. So these digital footprints that we leave behind, they have a tendency to follow us forever. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Does that happen in the political arena as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think we've all had the experience of searching for a pair of shoes and maybe getting it in our cart and then the pair of shoes follows us for the next two or three weeks. Yeah, that absolutely happens in the political world as well. One of the things that we know about how social media work and how a lot of things on the web work is that as you move through digital spaces, you leave traces of, of who you are and, and what you care about and what you're interested in. And so over time, they build up a profile of you that kind of shapes which of all the posts that are out there you might end up seeing. So does this happen in social media as well? Yeah, oh, for sure. I was thinking during the election, the 2020 election most recently, when I logged onto my Facebook, I saw tons of political advertising up until sort of a couple of weeks before the election. And Facebook knows that I'm interested in politics. And actually, you might not have tried this before, but if you're on Facebook and you see a, an ad, you can click these three little dots and you'll see, why am I seeing this? And if you click it and open that, what you'll find is a sort of a rough description of how you got targeted with that ad. So for me, it might say, you know, interested in politics or probably liberal or also liked some other politician. So absolutely, the ways that you're classified kind of shapes how people end up targeting you on these platforms. How do you think Facebook categorizes you? So you can go into Facebook and Twitter for that matter and download your own data. And part of what you get from that download is a list of all of the things that Facebook thinks it knows about you. And you can read through that list. So, you know, for a person like me, there's lots of political stuff in there. Actually, one of the things I'm most proud of is on my list is the word democracy. That is completely true. I am fascinated by democracy. It's a really accurate classification of me. But it's also other stuff, books you've read or your interest in local politics or that you have children, for example. And so over time, you build up this whole profile of who you are on these platforms. And that's where it gets really interesting because some people are not interested in politics and they maybe don't get targeted the same way and they don't naturally see as much political content as I might. So how did it figure out what books you read? Did it scrape that information or did you provide it to Facebook? 
no one knows exactly. I'm not even sure Facebook knows exactly anymore how their algorithmic classification system works. But my students and I went in and we read patents. So Facebook, like any other company, files patents that describe things, technologies that it thinks it might use. And when you go in and read those patents, it gives you clues about maybe how those data about you are being captured. So we know, for example, that big things, like if you like a post or engage with a post or share a post, or if one of your friends likes or engages with a post, we know that matters. But it looks like they also look at the text of what people share, the text of what other posts that people use, and they read that text and use that information as well. They also track a lot about where you go on the web in general. So if you visit lots of news websites or you visit lots of sports websites or lots of, I don't know, shoe websites, that'll shape it as well. So it's a really complex system that does its very, very best to try to figure out what it is you're passionate about in order to give you more of that. So how did you find all this out? So one of the really tough things about studying social media and politics is that these are companies, and for the most part, they don't want to share their data with, with researchers. And so if you want to study the Facebook algorithm, it's a kind of difficult thing to do. And so what we decided to do in that study was, instead of just downloading our own data and see how we've been classified in terms of our interests on Facebook, let's just ask other people to give us their data as well. And so we worked with a survey company, and we reached out to hundreds and hundreds of people and said, hey, would you download your data and donate it to our project? You know, and we take your name out of it, and we make it anonymous. And a lot of people were willing to do that. And so we then go through, and we look at how people are classified in general. And what did all that data reveal? Imagine there's like, there's you. There's like this physical person that's you. And then there's a digital version of you. There's like this ghostly person that exists on Facebook, for example. And if you are interested in politics, then actually the ghostly version of you that Facebook has created typically looks interested in politics, and then you see lots of news about politics, and so on and so forth. But if you're not very interested in politics, then the digital version of you looks like it's not into politics. And then actually you tend to see a little bit less kind of news in politics. But what's interesting is, in our data, at least, it matters more what Facebook thinks you're interested in than even what you tell us you're interested in. And as a result of that, we end up with this gap where somebody might be interested in something, but they're not seeing it because they haven't communicated that interest to the platform very well. But how does it divine what my interests are? By looking at where you go or what you click on, by looking at who you're friends with and what they click on, because Facebook fundamentally makes the assumption that you have things that are in common with your friends. So if you like movie X, then one of your friends is likely to like movie X as well. So all of those classification decisions are made based on just observing these footprints or traces of your own behavior. You know, in the early days of the internet, we were all quite giddy that this was going to be this uh, wonderful marketplace of ideas. So those are the good old days. Good old days, right? <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, optimism and hope. If these decisions are being made for us, does it limit the kind of diverse ideas and thoughts and topics that would really make for a broad-minded person and a good democracy? Yeah, I mean, there is no question that what you see on your newsfeed or what I see on my newsfeed, it's not a news paper. It's not even like the half hour broadcast nightly news, right? The Facebook algorithm is not optimized to provide you with a balanced, thoughtful view of what's happening in the world. That's not their purpose. In fact, I'm sure that Facebook would much rather have had nothing to do with news and politics that's causing them a lot of problems, right? And I think the problem with that is that increasing numbers of people, especially younger people who tend to be what I study, 
are really reliant on these platforms as a window into the world. And it's a weird, weird window into the world. It's a window that's shaped by advertisers. It's a window that's shaped by who you're friends with, who tend to be people that you do agree with. And then it's a window shaped by a lot of people who create content for these platforms, create content that they want to spread. And that means it's clickbait or it's highly emotional. It's stuff designed to really piss you off and like get you riled up. And those are things that we know are not particularly democratically healthy types of content. We hear so much about polarization. So what does that mean and how have social media, what is their role in creating a more polarized society? That's such a great question in terms of polarization, like people, groups, partisan groups being further and further apart from each other. There's some really interesting work suggesting that particularly emotional kinds of polarization are growing. So, you know, there's these wonderful survey questions like, would you be angry if your son or daughter married someone from the other political party? And the increasing numbers of people People are like, yeah, I'd be really angry if that happened, right? <laughs> and of course, this is happening at the same time that social media platforms are becoming so important to how we see the world. I think it's hard not to think that those two things are related. However, I guess I would pitch that it's a broader process than that, right? When we talk to people about what they see on their social media feeds, in fact, we sit down with people like over Zoom and we read their Facebook news feeds together, their Instagram together. What we hear regular people saying is, I don't want to see this political stuff. It just makes me mad. It just makes me frustrated that my, you know, crazy Uncle Frankie posts this stuff that I know is not true and it really pisses me off. And so I think there's a lot of anger being generated on social media that's really problematic for our capacity to be able to see each other and understand each other. So if we are averse to political news, not all of us, but, you know, you're saying quite a few people just don't want to be bothered by it. How did firms like Cambridge Analytica, how did they have such a big sway over what happened in the 2016 election? I think that's a really interesting question. We do know that they collected a lot of data. And, you know, back in the day, five years ago, six years ago, anyone who built an app for Facebook could collect a ton of data about all the users. So Cambridge Analytica made this app that was like a personality quiz. We love personality quizzes. So they collect all this data from millions and millions of people. And then they worked with a psychologist at Cambridge to try to build sort of a, a personality model that they thought would be a good way to target people with political advertising. Now, they shouldn't have done that because that's not what scholars do. That's not how researchers work. Then they take this and they use these data to target people. Did it actually work? I don't know. I've seen really mixed evidence as to how persuadable people are by that kind of targeted advertising. I don't share many personal things on social media, but it seems like younger people share anything and everything. Aren't they concerned about their privacy? I'll talk to my undergrads and I'll say, hey, do you know how much these platform companies know about you? And they're like, yeah, that doesn't really bother me. Like, Or that's the trade-off or it's free and this is the price I have to pay. I have to give over my privacy. But moments like Cambridge Analytica, they transform the privacy debate, right? Or, uh, you know, documentary on Netflix. Suddenly people were like, wait a minute, maybe bad things could happen with my data, even though I'm just a regular person who's not committing a crime. So I think for that, it's like a flashpoint in public discourse. It was really, really important. So after the flashpoint, is there evidence now that either people have become more vigilant about what they offer up 
and are policies being put in place to plug some of these holes? Yeah. So I would say in the U.S., I think still a majority of people are not too concerned about privacy. Very different than in the European context where they've made big policy strides that have really, I think, alerted the public to a lot of, of privacy concerns. In the U.S., we're not big on regulating social media so far here in the U.S., and so mostly we've relied on the platforms themselves to change their own behavior. I personally think that some more regulation will be required in the area of social media, but they didn't put me in charge. So Yeah, it's tough, right? Because we have, uh, you know, we really take pride in our First Amendment rights and free expression and free media. And so this is a very tricky, tricky situation, to say the least. So we hear about filter bubbles and confirmation bias and echo chambers. And what do all these things mean? And, and how does it affect me as I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed? So we do hear about echo chambers all the time. And I I get asked about echo chambers and filter bubbles more than anything else. (laughs) Well, you know, so I have to stay true to form. If we know that algorithms are trying to give you more of what you want on social media, right? Because ultimately, Facebook wants you to stay on Facebook so that Facebook can make more money. That's the fundamental thing that motivates them. Then, of course, the more liberal politics stuff a person sees, or the more conservative, if they're conservative, the more they engage with that stuff, The problem with the filter bubble argument is that it actually describes really well a very small number of people. Most people don't care that much about politics. They just want to live their lives. One of my colleagues um, in Amsterdam has coined this term that I think is amazing. She suggests that instead of talking about filter bubbles, we should talk about fringe bubbles, right? Mm, Fringe bubbles as these sort of like isolated spaces where the ideas just get wilder and wilder and wilder, right? And interestingly enough, you know, it's starting to look like it's actually people who are very untethered from the mainstream media space that sort of cycle into these fringe bubbles, right? You'll hear, for example, oh, my aunt so-and-so, she believes a lot of crazy things. And then those ideas still just trickle into average person spaces just because of who they're connected to, because of their relationships rather than because of their politics. And I think that's how people start to encounter those ideas and become persuaded by them because I trust you, right? And we have known forever that people are more persuaded by people they know than they are by media. I've been struggling with this. On the one hand, there is so much distrust of mainstream media. So what a lot of folks think, oh, that is sort of closer to the truth or reality. And then you have this undying loyalty to stuff that, quote unquote, is fringe. I mean, just really wacko stuff. And if there is such a big divide in perceptions of reality between fringe group and what we call mainstream, how do you bridge this gap? I think you and I share this sort of belief that Empathy and trust are these fundamental routes to get us to a better place. And I'm having a lot of trouble, I think, finding that empathy when when we have facts that seem so clear to me to be facts that are disbelieved by a fairly substantial number of people. So I think one way that I try to find that empathy is to think about how does it feel to live in a world where you don't trust mainstream media, right? That's not my experience. I can say to myself, okay, well, it's on NPR, okay, or it's on the New York Times, fine, I believe it. But when we talk to young people about their experiences with media, exactly as you say, they don't have that default 
trust. That helps me understand a little bit better. And the other part of it is we can blame social media as a amplifier or an aggravator of these sort of polarizing trends. But ultimately, I think people in fringe bubbles, they believe so deeply that it's become impossible for those ideas to be challenged, right? And yet the American way of being is that we are willing to take the time and to continue to persist to try to have these conversations across lines. No, you're absolutely right. And I, much like you, am an optimist. But the thing that I worry about now is what you mentioned, which is this amplification factor, right? I mean, it's so intense and so shrill and it's persistent. It's always there. How are we going to turn this noise down? It's not It's not a good moment for optimists. Right? <laughs> This is not our time. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look historically at other really turbulent political times, I think sometimes this is what it takes to get the world to the next step, right? I mean, there are so many things that we have ignored for too long that are social issues. And when we really start to tackle them, I think, you know, sometimes we just have to kind of bludgeon our way forward and believe that when we get to the next level, we'll be able to start compromising again. So, I, you know. I'm, I'm torn. It's a really, really difficult time. There's so much powerful social change happening as part of that that it's hard to want it to be any different. Are we seeing a trickle-down effect from the national issues into our local communities through social media? I've been thinking so much about the roles of platforms like Facebook, actually mostly Facebook, but also things like Nextdoor or these other spaces that have become increasingly important to local communities. And on the one hand, I think there's reason to be very excited about these spaces. But the flip side of that is that we are all aware of the ways in which national politics are starting to encroach on the local, right? We see more and more that even local issues are becoming politicized in a way they never were before. Typically, local issues haven't been like left and right. They're you and I problems, right? <laughs> They're sort of, you know, community identity problems. And so, for example, moderators of neighborhood Facebook groups are increasingly banning politics from those spaces. And to me, you know, we have to find a way to build systems to support us to have reasonable conversations. We have to find some in-between of turn it all off versus yell at each other. There has to be some ways that we can use technology to help support gentle, deliberative, not getting hurt feelings all the time type of conversations. And for us to start talking about it this way, to say, hey, just talking about politics on Facebook isn't always going to be bad because sometimes politics is about a beach cleanup or building a new road or some new schools, right? Things that we can disagree about, but that we know how to talk about. And I think if we create space for people to start to feel comfortable with that, there's a real potential there. Where do you think we're headed? Is there a way for us as individuals and communities to come back together? I don't know if you're if you're going to find this as silvery aligning as I do, but I think that part of the greatness of America is the huge numbers of people that just don't care that much. There's a lot of people in this country that just want to live their lives. And that to me is the real hope that just because some of us are really charged up and really furious, that has always been balanced in America by the moderates, by the unengaged, by the uninvested, right? And those people still turn up to to go to bake sales. They still run five K's for charity, right? They're in their communities and they care deeply about issues and about other people, but they're not part of the national political yelling scene. And I believe in those people, right? Sometimes they get a little led astray, but I, I believe in that sort of power of moderation is still something that'll help us move forward. That reminds me, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she advocated, somebody asked her about relationships and marriage and so on. And she said, sometimes it helps to be a little deaf. 
So, <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. See ya. Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Kirsten Thorson. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech. <laughs>